Oh, wait a second. We're doctors. What? <laughs> Brace yourself. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm Dr. Mel Herbert. Next patient. Oh. I'm Dr. Jess Mason. It was so good, you guys. That was such a good joke. And I'm Dr. Oh. I'm just Dave Mason. <laughs> this is killing me. <laughs> the medical show about everything that's fun and interesting and educational for the non-physician in your life. Okay. Here we go. Uh, should we do this? Yeah. What are we ready? What are we doing? This. 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 Well, here we are again to talk about COVID yet Yay, again. we actually got another episode going. This is awesome. Yeah. Pandemic episode two. Pandemic episode two. So why are we doing a second episode, Mel? Because there's so much we didn't talk about. There's so much that we've learned and uh, the overwhelming demand that my mother said you should do another one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, what do you want to know about COVID as of today, which, you know, might very well change? Tomorrow. April 15th. Mm-hmm. That's today. Yep. Um, well, what's some of the big differences? What has changed or is a lot of it the same? Um, we have learned a tremendous amount about this disease. We still don't know a tremendous amount, but it is amazing how much we have learned. So we've now been able to watch um, what happens when you deal with this a little bit too late And what I mean by that is you don't do your physical distancing on time. So New York exploded and um, the ERs were overwhelmed there. And, you know, you see it on the news every night, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people have died. Compare that with California, which um, some of the governors, the governor and some of the local officials shut down California a lot earlier. And our curve has been really flat. So we haven't had that huge exponential spike in the number of cases. Now, it may also be that California is a bit more spread out or certainly Los Angeles is more spread out. We're not sort of on top of each other like in New York. That may have something to do with it. But uh, just that contrast between lots of social distancing or physical distancing versus not so much and how that can make a difference two weeks, three weeks later in the number of cases is stunning to me. We're also learning a lot about, you know, how infectious is COVID-19, which it looks like it's probably more infectious than originally thought. From what I remember early on, people were saying that you were infectious to others within like two weeks of getting it and not even showing symptoms. You're walking around thinking you're okay, and you're just shedding virus particles off on everybody. Is that still the same? Or you're saying it's even more infectious? So the thing that we look at is something called r not, And r not is if you, Dave, have COVID-19, how many people are you likely to infect? So mm. if r not is one, which is probably Wait, somewhat... Wait, how do you spell r not? It's R with like a little subscript zero. Oh. Yeah. Not A-R-E-N-O-T. You are not or infectious. No, it's R and then a subscript zero. Like the letter R... Okay. So influenza is around one to two. So if you get influenza, then you are probably going to infect one or maybe two other people with influenza on a bad flu season year. And now newer data is showing that it's actually more likely with with COVID-19 that you might infect as many as five or six people. That that is like a zombie virus. It's I mean, it makes sense why it's a pandemic. But uh, but that's all based on modeling. And, you know, what they say about modeling is the modeling is only as good as the input data. And so who so who knows if that's true? But that's what newer data is looking like. It's very, very infectious. And that's sort of on the order of measles. 
Measles mm. is an R not of five. Yeah, I know it's, yeah, measles has that rap that it's super infectious. Yes, yeah. That infectivity is a real problem because what it means is if you've got a really high R naught, like a five or a six, which is what we think, then that means it spreads really easy. And the idea of herd immunity, that uh, how many people out there in, in the world have been exposed and um, if you've got lots of people that are exposed, then the virus will stop spreading because it just keeps bumping into people that have already had it and so they're immune. But if your r naught is really high, then it continues to spread through the population even when lots and lots of people have been exposed. So this will continue to spread through the population even when 80% of the population has um, immunity. It will continue to spread through the rest of the 20% as well. So that's why it's a, a real problem going forward it's not like we can sort of really, you know, take our foot off the uh, accelerator and say, okay, everybody can go back to their normal activities. You just can't until we get a vaccine because it's going to infect everybody. It's so infectious. One other thing I want to bring up that's changed significantly, and I want to bring this up because I know that our audience is an audience that really is interested in the medical knowledge. And so this isn't really for just the regular lay audience, but for people who are particularly interested in how we manage this, the way that we're thinking about, you know, putting someone on a ventilator is actually quite different through experience. Um, initially, the thinking was these people get super sick really fast. They get really hypoxic or low oxygen concentrations. And so they need to be intubated and put on a mechanical ventilator very early. Right. That thinking is changing. Let them be hypoxic. We'll give them oxygen. We'll do other things that are more supportive and less invasive. And then we'll just watch them and watch them until they really need that intubation and mechanical ventilation that they just can't breathe on their own without our help. So that is a big change in the way we're thinking about COVID and managing it. So your sensitivity for jumping to that step has gone down. Yes. Oh. And is that because you're running out of ventilators so you need to save them for like the actual bad ones or or you're just it's just a different methodology now? So I, I would say it's not because of that, but that is a good sort of side effect of this decision making. Mm. It's because it looks like patients do better when they're not put oh, on a ventilator really? early. It also, of course, spares more ventilators and more ICU beds and ICU nurses and all of that is, you know, we're able to manage those resources much more effectively. But that's not the reason why we're not doing inferior care because okay. we had to we're strapped for resources. Right. We are strapped for resources, sure. but this is just that's, truly because yeah. it seems to be the better way of doing things. You may have seen the video. There was a critical care doc in New York. It's gone viral. So you know, millions of people have seen it now. And uh, he is talking about, this is just not like anything we've ever done in critical care before. The type of lung injury we've seen with other diseases, this just doesn't act like it at all. And that's this is part of it. People are coming in so hypoxic, but they don't look very you know upset about it. Normally, if you're your oxygenation in your blood is really low. You're really, really agitated, but people are coming in with crazy low oxygen, but they don't feel that um, short of breath. They feel short of breath, but they're not. It's just, it's acting like differently than anything that people have seen before. And that's part of it. Normally you would intubate these people early, but we think that that's actually going to make people worse. And they're also doing this thing where they're doing a thing called proning, where they're finding that if they, people lie on their bellies, then they're able to get their oxygenation up. And so they're doing lots of pruning. That is so yeah. weird. That's so yeah, strange. And well, the reason is because um, a lot of the part of the lungs that are affected the most are the on along your back, okay. along your backside. 
And so um, and that's because if you're laying on your back, as you could imagine, think of the lung as a big squishy, like a foam pillow. The lower portion is going to get compressed more so than the upper portion just because of gravity. And so if so you're having people lay, lay, uh, lay on their front. Yeah. Laying on your chest or your stomach and letting the back part of the lungs open up more so they're not getting so squished. And then you flip back over and you sit up. Basically, what's your where are you comfortable? Are you more comfortable sitting up, sitting on your stomach? Normally, we would almost never tell patients sit on your stomach or, or lay down on your stomach and your chest, but it seems to be improving their ability to breathe and get oxygen. So it sounds like instead of ventilators, we need to ramp up uh, manufacturing on massage beds. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So where are we at in the country right now with like how many people are suspected to have it and how many people have actually died from it? Uh, there's a couple interesting things that are happening. One, it seems like no one can seem to get a test unless you're like a politician or a celebrity or a sports person. So I'm guessing that big number of like 500,000 people have it. Well, it's actually like 500,000 celebrities, politicians, and sports <laughs> players have it. And then in terms of death, at the uh, some of the White House news briefings, uh, Dr. Bricks? Burks. Burks was saying how some of the deaths, they're saying that... Um, if they had COVID when they were tested, but they died of a brain tumor they've had for five years, they're getting thrown under the COVID number. And then some people aren't getting tested at all. And they're just saying, well, this person probably had COVID. So we're going to throw that in the number two. So, so what are the numbers? Like, how do we get our heads around what's actually happening? There's lots of different places you can look, but the one that everybody is using, probably the best one is the John Hopkins uh, website. So if you do a Google search for John Hopkins COVID-19 map, it uh, shows you all the reported cases throughout the world. So as of today, April 15th, there's been 2 million confirmed cases throughout the world. In the United States, there's been 614,000 confirmed cases and 27,000 deaths, most of them obviously in New York area and now spreading through the rest of the country. So if you watch this over the last few weeks, it's like, well, there was a few people and then there was a more people. It's really exploded. Hopefully we've slowed it down now, that curve thing. But that's, I find, is the most interesting place to go. And we talked last time about what we think the mortality is. We don't know still because we haven't tested everybody. In order to know the true mortality, you need to test everybody, find out who's got it, and then follow it over you know, weeks to months to see how many people die. But we think it's probably going to be around 1% or 2%. And like you say, Dave, they've confirmed 614,000. They've done 3 million tests, which sounds like a lot. But there's 350 million people in the United States. So the overwhelming majority of people in the US have not been tested for it. I think Jess was showing me, what was that list you were showing me of deaths reported by country? Mm-hmm. And and then I, I asked, so who's doing the best job? And it must be the really corrupted countries that aren't reporting uh, true, uh, yeah. honestly. So like Yemen was like crushing it. They had like well, one death. One. Like one case, way to go, Yemen. One case and they survived. <laughs> right. No, I mean, it, that's true is that you have to be, we should be skeptical about any data that we're being presented with before we just accept that data at face value. And so when you look at the numbers uh, per capita in the U.S. versus the number of cases and deaths per capita in other countries, the U.S. is really doing not that bad. We're kind of in the middle. I think our number was, what was it, 83 or something like that, um, yeah. per deaths per 1 million people. And there's a lot of places with higher numbers. Spain is almost 400 
per 1 million. Um, and then you look at countries like China and it's two. Yeah. And Russia, Russia one. Killing like, it. Really? We're doing so good. Or is your government just not <laughs> wanting it to look so bad over there? Well, you bring up a good point about um, countries. Sweden, from the get-go, has had this policy of like, Young people, go out and do your thing and keep that co- economy moving. And old people, we're just going to shove food under the door. Are, are, <laughs> is that working? Are they, Do they have a better grip on this than we do? Or what's going on? That's a tough question because we're doctors. We're not economists. And so it's hard to speak to both sides of the equation. Um, that is basically what they're doing is they're letting people still go out to restaurants, just not sit at the bar. They're still letting kids have their soccer or football games. Um, they're just tr- trying to protect the more at-risk people and do, you know, limit no gatherings over 50 people, which is in contrast to their neighboring countries uh, like Denmark and Finland, who have much tighter restrictions on on what their population is able to do. And Sweden does have significantly more deaths per one million compared to their neighboring countries. Uh-oh. But they still don't have that many. Okay. I mean, they're still, I forget what the exact number was, but it's sort of like around what the, it was lower than what the U.S. is having, um, which is higher than other countries. So is that a good thing? No, more people are dying there, but their economy is not going to be as crushed as other countries. So, again, I'm not qualified to speak from an economic standpoint and sort of weigh human life versus the economy. I mean, who's really qualified to say anything about that? But it is interesting to see different countries are handling this differently. And, you know, what will be the effects and what will we learn from that looking back on it? Yeah, we should check back in about a month because Sweden looks like they're about to go through the exponential part of the curve. Just yesterday, they had 114 deaths in 24 hours, which is, again, if you look at the graph, it starts off slowly and then it takes off in this exponential fashion. So the Mm. researchers in Sweden are now saying, "Uh uh-oh, we think it's about to explode. So it'll be tragic to see if this, you know, if the virus is acting in Sweden like it acts everywhere else, this is going to be a public health disaster in Sweden. They're going to overrun their hospitals. And Bill just sent me the the numbers as of now, the deaths in the U.S. per- This just in. Just in from Bill Connor. <laughs> Bill is not a doctor, but he does know how to use Google. Um, the U.S. has 79 cases. Not 83, 79. 79 Deaths per 1 million people in the population. 79 deaths per 1 million in the population compared to Sweden, which has 101 deaths per 1 million people in the population. So they're they're higher than us. You know, everyone looks at the gross number like the U.S. has the most cases in the world. Yeah, we got a lot of people who live here. You can't look at the total number. You got to look at the number per capita. So when you compare us to Sweden, we're doing better than Sweden. Um, And we're kind of I feel like we're kind of in the middle. Like we're really not doing that bad. New York and You have to take into aside, account, too, the age of the country and um, the people in it. Because, yes. like, Sweden, from what I understand, has a pretty young population versus our population that maybe has this huge baby boomer population. Italy reportedly had a really older population. Um, so maybe that's affecting it. I don't know. Yeah, that certainly could because the people who are most, you know, get in trouble from this are older people. Italy's average age is somewhere around 45. The U.S., it's around 38. We've got friends in Kenya. The average age there is 18. Um, but, you know, places like Kenya are not reporting many cases because, mm. not because of a corrupt government. They just do not have the tests. They can't test. And um, so it might be that different countries will will do better in terms of mortality 
because of the average age, but somewhere in like Kenya, they have a tremendous amount of other diseases which sure. could make mm-hmm. even young people do very yeah. poorly with it. Lots of sickle cell disease, lots of tuberculosis. Yeah. Then yeah. throw in COVID on top of that, that young age of the population may not be protective. Breaking news from Sweden. So a little follow-up on this, actually, it's now 24 hours later. It's April 16th. And uh, yesterday they had 170 deaths. And so it looks like they're hitting that exponential part of the curve where things really take off. The scientists, a group of 27 scientists got together and said, we've really got to lock this down. Just asking people to social distance and they're not doing it is not enough. And they're concerned. And in fact, for a scientific paper that I just reviewed for our textbook chapter that Jess and I authored, um, their modeling is that they're going to overrun their ICU capacity by 40 fold if they just let this thing keep going. And I initially read one of the reports is that they are going to lock it down now. They've got the message, but it turns out they're not yet. Even today on April 16th, they're still letting people just sort of do their own thing. It's I'm really concerned about what's going on there. And this is in contrast to somewhere like New Zealand that are actually trying to do the exact opposite thing. They um, crushed the curve. They are trying to continue to crush the curve. They're really shutting things down because they think that they can actually eliminate it from the population. So in a few weeks, when we do another one of these, we'll be able to tell you what that looks like when you completely try and crush it and uh, get lots of social distancing and get rid of the virus out of your community versus basically having a laissez-faire sort of attitude. What's the uh, situation in Fresno right now compared to New York and some of these other places that are seeing like a harder hit? It doesn't feel like we don't I don't feel like it's New York and Fresno. I mean, besides just the the way it looks. But but I mean, with the cases of covid. It's really kind of eerie right now in the ER because we put out this plea to everyone to please stay home. Don't come into the ER unless you're really sick. And people really took that seriously. So they're just really not coming in nearly in the same numbers that they typically do. We don't have a lot of cases of COVID. We do have some. uh, And we do have some people who are very sick and we have some deaths. But our numbers are very low compared to New York and compared to many, many other cities. We're we do have just over half a million people in Fresno, but we're pretty spread out. Um, For the most part, we're pretty suburban and spread out. So I I don't think we're going to get hit as hard. We keep waiting and waiting for when this surge is going to come. It has not come yet. Not only has the surge of COVID not come, but all the other patients we typically see, they are not coming in very often. So we it's so weird. I mean, we're normally just stressed and busy and maxed out every single shift. Normally, we can't even have, you know, we max out on the number of people that are allowed to wait in the lobby and we have to ask family members to step out because our seats are all full. It's like empty a lot of the day. And we're standing there twiddling our thumbs, waiting to see patients and just wondering like, hey, aren't people still having strokes? Hey, aren't people still having gallstone attacks? Like, where did the patients go? So it's really sort of a sort of an odd time to to work in the ER. And it's so slow that in a lot of emergency departments throughout the country, shifts are getting cut. Like we don't need as many doctors around because there's just no patients. And that's in stark contrast to parts of the country where they can barely keep up. But, you know, I I mentioned this contrast between Fresno and other parts of the country. And uh, let's bring in one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Anand Swaminathan, who is working right now in Patterson, New Jersey, and he can kind of give us the perspective on what things are like in New York and New Jersey, where it's just really, really insanely busy. 
Having gone through the surge, I've noticed uh, a number of different things. In the couple of weeks leading up to the surge, we had this huge volume decline. Maybe 25, 30% of our normal volume was coming in. We weren't seeing all of the illness that we usually saw. So the heart attacks and the strokes and the overwhelming infections, they weren't coming in. And then during the real crunch, during the real surge of COVID patients, everybody had COVID-19. Once the surge really hit, all of the patients in our department were there for COVID-19. The symptoms were all consistent with COVID-19, and we weren't seeing the heart attacks and the strokes. We weren't seeing trauma. Our trauma volume has dropped tremendously. We're not seeing any trauma patients at all. And the pediatric volume in our place, which is usually pretty high, there's no kids coming in. We actually commandeered the pediatric area to see more adult patients, and we've crammed all of the pediatric visits into four small rooms in one part of our emergency department, and even those, they're rarely filled. People just aren't bringing their kids into the hospital, and of course, what we worry about is that there are lots of patients that are staying home with severe disease because they're afraid of this virus, and they've heard this message of don't come to the hospital. There's lots of patients who can't get to the clinic or their regular doctors to get their regular medications, so their chronic illnesses are going to decompensate. And we're actually thinking that we might see a second surge, not of COVID-19, but of patients with all of these other chronic diseases that are now going to come in. And they let things go really far because they were afraid, because they heard those messages. And we're going to see them coming back in and having levels of disease far further along than we normally would see them because they were resisting coming into the emergency department. So that's a really good point. Where are all these people? And if you're sick, if you're having a stroke, if you can't move your the left side of your body, you should go to the ear. Um, if you've got having chest pains, um, you should go to the ear. So the staying home is really for those people who are like, oh, I got a little scratch, I think I'll be fine. Normally you would go and get checked, but if you're sick, Still go see Jess. She still needs to look after you. I think and I hope that what we've seen happen in New York is a special circumstance because of the incredibly dense population in New York and that they were a bit slower to lock down compared with California. So they were a bit slower. Everyone's living in apartment complexes on top of each other. Of course, they were going to get hit hard. And, and I hope that that's just unique to New York and that doesn't happen throughout the rest of the country. Well, unfortunately, I think it, we've already seen like in New Orleans, huge spike. They had Mardi Gras and probably yeah, that was, was getting passed around Mardi Gras. In northern Italy, as bad as New York. In Spain, terrible. But what's weird about this, again, is it could also be pretty regional. So um, there are some hospitals here in Los Angeles that have really got a huge number of cases. And then like 20 miles away, the hospitals are almost empty. So it's weird the way it acts. Maybe it's because it started to spread through a community. Then we did the physical distancing and it's not spreading between communities because we've really done a good job of saying, don't go to the north of Chicago. Uh, don't go to the south of Chicago. Stay in your little piece. But it's been really regional. And even in uh, Italy, it's so concentrated in some areas, but not in others. And meanwhile, we're using a ton of PPE, personal protective equipment, because we keep being told it's coming. It's coming. Anyone with a cough, they're going to have COVID. So get fully gowned and mask and face shield and everything. And now we're like, hey, we've been using this stuff for a few weeks now. And we're trying to be really responsible about how we use it and reuse it. But we're like, uh, we're using a lot of PPE here and we're still waiting for our surge. We might be out of it by the time we really need it. Um, can we go back to the whole, you were saying about the herd immunity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how come we aren't taking that tactic? Why are we shutting ourselves off from everything and then and then hoping it just because it seems like it's going to spike when we all just come out of our houses and breathe the fresh air and like, okay, world, I'm back. And then it seems like it's going to hit us instead of in the beginning, we didn't just sort of go around and just, you know, build up that herd immunity. Well, the problem with that, if you let this virus do what it wants to do, it will infect millions and millions and millions of people within an incredibly short period of time. So the modeling is kind of uh, frightening about how quickly it would spread through, say, everybody in the United States, infecting almost everybody. And even though only about 5% of those people would end up in the ICU, that is millions and millions of people in the ICU. We do not have the capacity for that. And we don't have the ventilators. It would just completely overwhelm the healthcare system. Not only would there be no ICU beds, there would be no beds in the hospital. There'd be no beds anywhere to do that number of people that quickly. So although this virus is probably going to spread through most of the population anyway, you just can't let it do it the way it wants to do, which is, I'm going to see if I can infect everybody in four weeks. That would just totally overwhelm the healthcare system. There would literally be dead people in the streets. So will there be a second wave once people just kind of open up the doors and start going about their business again? Yeah, I think there's a lot of speculation on that. No one knows what's going to happen, but likely... Yes, there will be another wave of cases. Will it come with a sudden sharp peak like the first wave came? Who knows, but probably not, at least not right away. A lot of us are really hopeful that with summer coming and the warmer weather, the virus isn't going to be able to wreak as much havoc because it's not as stable at higher temperatures. That's if it behaves like other similar types of viruses. So we're hoping there's some seasonality and that if the second wave comes in the middle of summer or as the weather's heating up, it just it won't have you know the ability to take hold of the population the way it did the first time. I worry about what's going to happen in the fall. And with next winter, Mm. I feel like that's when it's probably going to come back in bigger numbers um, if we don't have a way of a more effective way of managing it, treating it, mitigating the spread in the community. So I think, yes, there will be a second wave, but exactly when that is remains to be seen. But we should be clear, we don't know if it's going to be seasonal. Um, We just don't know about this virus yet. And it is spreading in places that are much warmer right now, like in Australia and Africa and stuff. So we don't know if it's going to have that seasonality. We are hoping other coronaviruses do, but we're not sure. There was a model um, from LA, from the LA mayor's office that said, if we in Los Angeles, who don't have a lot right now, but we have a you know reasonable amount, if we go back to normal activities, their model shows that by August 1st, 96% of Angelinos will have been infected. Whoa. So, But these models have been really under question. You know, h- how accurate are they? You know, I, those are scary numbers. That's really, really scary. But would that really happen? I, I don't know. No one knows. Yeah, it's if that R0 is right, if it is around five or six, then it is pretty frightening. Because once LA gets out of this first wave... You know, only a very small percent of people are actually going to have been exposed because we did the right thing. We did the physical distancing and very few people have been exposed. So if you just go back to normal, you'll see a New York-like spike again. So it's going to be all about how do we get back to normal economic activity or as much as possible, but without having a giant spike. And so that's a real trick. How did they do it in South Korea and other places is that they they did a bunch of testing. 
If you tested positive, then they'd talk to you and find out everybody that you'd basically been near for the last week or so and tell all those people, stay home. You and all of those contacts, so it's called contact tracing. So everybody stays home. So you can do it that way, but you need, it's been estimated here in the United States to do that, that testing. First of all, you need hundreds of millions of tests. And contact tracing, you need about 300,000 workers to do that. And there was a really interesting article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that said that we should take every medical student and nursing student and say you're going to go on six months sabbatical and you're going to work for your public health department doing contract tracing. And that's really the one of the few ways that you could get the country back up and running without having a giant spike. But it means that uh, these people would be running around and saying, you got exposed to somebody, you have to stay home for two weeks. Okay, so are we closer to a treatment for this? I mean, what about the uh, chloroquine? That was that was like all the hype a couple weeks ago. And now the new one is this remdesivir? Desivir? Mm-hmm. Remdesivir? Yeah. What's is, is anything working? Is there something else we haven't heard about yet? So to answer your first question, are we any closer to having a treatment? Yes, we are, because we have the world's focus, like every anyone in healthcare who can potentially study medications to treat this is all on board. So there's an incredible energy behind this and lots of things are being looked at. So, yes, we are closer to finding something that is helpful. I don't think we're going to find something that's like the cure, Mm -hmm. you know, but things that are going to be helpful. I think we're on the right track. Um, Chloroquine. Mel, tell us tell us your thoughts about chloroquine and then I'll talk about remdesivir. Yeah, so chloroquine is one of what is literally hundreds of different medications that people are thinking maybe that'll help. So here's how they do it, is you take the virus, you put it in some cells, you put it in a Petri dish, and then you pour in your medication, whether it's chloroquine or whatever else. There's another one that's called um, ivermectin, which is for bugs. Like literally, like insect bugs? uh, Parasites. Bugs that infect people, parasites. Um, And there's a whole bunch like this. So in vitro, in the plastic dish, when you do that, it really drops the amount the virus replicates. You know, one of the uh, infectious diseases experts we have on one of our shows said, the analogy is like with this in vitro stuff, yeah, you put chloroquine in there and it reduces uh, the viral uh, load and how much it replicates. But if I put bleach in there, it'll do I'm the just, same yeah. thing. But I'm not, I'm not going to drink bleach. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, bleach will do it. No yep. one's drinking bleach. Yep. Gargle with some bleach. And so people have been looking at that saying, oh, well, that means if I take chloroquine, it'll reduce replication of virus in me and surely that would be good. Problem is that is that there are so many things that do that, that that doesn't mean it's going to work at all. So for chloroquine, unfortunately, the few studies that have come out, even in the last few days, doesn't look like it's working at all. There is three big studies that should be out by the end of the month or early next month, which are randomized and done really well. And we should know soon if it's working and if and when you should take it, because there's some question about whether you should use it prophylactically or if you're sicker or if it works at all. We know in other diseases where it's in vitro has reduced uh, the ability of the virus to replicate, then you give it to people who actually have the disease, have gotten worse. So chloroquine, we still don't know, but it's not looking great. And um, like I say, there is going to be, I think, in the next month or so, a whole bunch of papers that will tell us if there's something that might help. But like Jess, I don't think we're going to find a magic cure. So there's another medication that's being studied right now that you mentioned, remdesivir. Uh, A little bit of background on this. So this is actually an antiviral medication. It's under development right now. It's not supposed to be released. And under normal circumstances, we wouldn't be just distributing this and people taking it around the world. 
it's supposed to be in these earlier phases where it's looking to see if it even works and if it's safe. Um, but it's being given to patients now. And we don't know because we don't have an actual study that compares it to placebo or other medications, which there aren't any. Um, those trials are happening now, though. And we really hope that we can get some answers on this soon, hopefully before that second wave comes, if I'm right, and it comes in the fall and winter. Hopefully we have some answers about what medications may actually be helpful and not harmful. So some of these drugs, what are they actually doing? Are they blocking the virus? Are they actually destroying the virus? Are they just treating your your big symptoms? Mm-hmm. What's What are they doing? Well, in the case of remdesivir, that one's blocking the virus's ability to replicate itself. That's what it's designed to do. So it's truly an antiviral medication. Um, but there's lots of ways to attack this problem. And one of the things that makes the super sick people super sick is it's not just the virus. It's the body's response to the virus, where the body goes into this crazy mode where your immune system's like, I'm going to attack this virus. And then it causes all this inflammation and leaky blood vessels and you get this huge overwhelming response to it. That's called a cytokine storm. So maybe we could treat that, the body's actual reaction to the virus. Mel, what medications are under investigation right now that actually look at treating the body's response to the virus? There's one that I can't pronounce, tozolizumab, something like that. All of these things are unpronounceable. But yeah, it does exactly. There's this thing called interleukin-6, which is part of the inflammatory response, which a little bit of inflammatory response to an infection is good. That probably helps kill the bugs. But as Jess said, for some reason in some people, you're getting this gigantic amount of interleukin-6 and all of this inflammation, and this is damaging their lungs and killing people. So one of the trials ongoing right now is this special antibody thing, rem, what's it, tomzalizumab? I don't know how to pronounce it, but it blocks interleukin-6, and we're hopeful that, yeah, maybe that will help that gigantic Hulk-like inflammation. Okay, so I, I think last time when we recorded this, masks, um, the, the, the recommendation on wearing a face mask was sort of lukewarm by the general public, the government. Like, it hadn't even happened yet. Wear it, don't wear it. It was it was actually don't wear don't, masks in public because yeah, you're stealing them from healthcare providers. Right. And now it's, well, you should wear one, but don't wear the really nice ones. Wear like a bandana because the healthcare workers need the nice ones. So what's the, what's the story? Are, are face masks working? Is that a thing? Should we be doing this? These cloth face masks that people are wearing in public, they may help prevent you as the person wearing the mask from spreading virus to someone else. And if it's true, which it probably is, that a lot of people have the virus but don't have any symptoms, they're walking around in public and just talking. They're spewing little particles of moisture and virus everywhere. And so wearing a face mask might minimize the amount of virus they're spreading to other people. And it's also good sociologically, if you're wearing a mask and everybody's wearing a mask for you to realize, hey, what's going on here? That's right, we're in a pandemic. It sort of helps to remind you, I should stay six feet away from people. It also, I think, might help to remind you, I shouldn't be rubbing my eyeballs and and touching my face before I wash my hands. So I think it can have secondary effects as well. Well, that one's not true. Because if I go to the store and I see people wearing masks, they take off their mask to talk to the cash <laughs> register, to, to the re- at the register. 
They they wear it below their nose. They wear it on the side of their face. <laughs> one strap on, one strap on. <laughs> they cut holes in it and wear it like an eye mask. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't know. I haven't been out in weeks. It's weird going to the grocery store where you see one person wearing a cloth mask, one person wearing an N95 mask, and someone else just wearing nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. I know. And then we're passing each other in the aisle like, oh, did you did you want that top ramen? Or uh, I was going to get that one. <laughs> oh, no, you take it. And after you've touched it and exchanged, you know, bugs to each other. And then when you go wait in line, we're all six feet away from each other. <laughs> no, no, we were just exchanging top ramen 10 minutes ago. Oh, but now I'm really infectious. So I got to stand six feet back from you. I think top ramen actually does kill the virus. So maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah, the sodium in it. Definitely. <laughs> Most people are like Corey. They love eating all those noodles and top ramen. What you'll love is that you can serve your family in three minutes and for just pennies. Well, Corey, how'd it taste? It's fine. Top ramen oriental noodle soup. The mostly noodle noodle soup from Nishin Foods. I heard about this test now with antibodies. Like, I can take a test and then it'll tell me if I've already had COVID-19, which makes me, well, I don't know. Can I go outside? <laughs> Am I still allowed outside if I have have had COVID nineteen? But what, what's up with the antibodies test? So this is a this is really important, and actually this might be the way we can slowly get back to a more normal life. So the test that you've been hearing about most of the time is called a PCR test. It actually looks for the virus itself. It actually looks for just a piece of the RNA. And then it amplifies that and says whether you've got it or not. It's not a great test. It's negative, well, you know, at least 25% of the time when you really have it. But these antibody tests are actually looking at, do you have antibodies in your blood to the virus? So it means that you've been infected with the virus. And the reason that could be really useful is that we believe that if you've got those antibodies, you can't get this again. Now, you may have heard in the newspapers that it looks like some people got it again. That's really not clear that that's happening. It's almost certainly true that overwhelmingly, if you've got the antibodies, you're not going to be able to get reinfected with COVID-19 at least for months and probably years. We don't know exactly how long. And so what that would mean is if Dave comes in and I do this test and it's really fast, it takes about five minutes, and it's uh, like a home pregnancy test and it says, you've been infected and you've got antibodies, I can you know, say to Dave, you know, you can go out and go back to work because you're protected from this thing right now. But if somebody is negative, it's like, well, you need to still do the social distancing and all that stuff. Um, when do you think we're going to get back to just normal life and we're just living with COVID-19? I mean, you know, doctors on one side obviously want this to be shut down until it's completely gone. The economic side wants it to hurry up, but there's got to be a middle ground somewhere, right? Yeah, I think we can only speculate on this. No one really knows. I don't think we'll be back to truly normal until there's a vaccine. Mm, uh, but yeah. that's that's a ways away. I mean, we're not going to have that for a year. So what's life going to be like in a few months from now and a year from now? It, my opinion, my speculation is hopefully we're back to a functioning economy, but where people wear masks, people maintain some social distancing measures that are reasonable, good hand washing. And hopefully by then we have some treatments that are effective so that we can handle the cases that come in and preserve as many people's lives as possible. Mel, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to there isn't going to be a normal for a very long time and until we get that vaccine. And you're going to see all those things that you've said, there's probably going to be much more changes about how we get our food and how we go out and 
contactless payments and all of this stuff. And it will be stepwise approach. And so a region will start to go back out and try and uh, start the economy going. And if there's a flare, then there'll be contact tracing and that kind of stuff. We're seeing this in Japan already. They tried to open up some areas and then it started to break out again. So I think it's going to be open, closed, open, closed, open, closed. Um, and like you say, Jess, it's really a tension between wanting to really shut this down so that we can stockpile our PPE and our ventilators and fix our hospitals and add beds versus you can't close the economy for you because people are going to starve to death and create lots of social problems. So that's going to be a very difficult balancing act between getting people back to work and not having another spike or two or three. It's going to be tough. Well, one positive thing out of all this is we sort of live out um, outside of Fresno City and we have never been able to get DoorDash or Uber Eats to come up to us. And now they do. <laughs> wow. Silver linings. Silver linings. Got to find the positive. The other amazing positive thing is how clean the air is. Yes. Uh, Los Angeles just got uh, ranked the big, you know, the cleanest city over a million in the entire world. And it just goes to show that, you know, COVID we're dirty. Can do some good things. <laughs> People are dirty. <laughs> okay, okay. Wrap it up. So we've learnt a lot. We have so much more to learn. We'll do another one of these, you know, when we've got more stuff to tell you about this thing. But just think about it. It's hard for me. Maybe it's hard for you too. Hard for me to get my head around this because, you know, my grandparents and the elderly folks would tell you about the world wars that they lived through. Um, the last time there was anything like this in the world was 100 years ago. There are not a lot of people around that remember it back then. We are living through a pandemic. You will be telling your kids and your grandkids about this. It's okay to be a little anxious and be a little confused because we're trying to work this out as we go. This is in a remarkable time, but we can actually help each other out, which is really amazing by doing the social distancing, by not being stupid, washing our hands, maybe wearing masks and doing the right thing. You can actually save people's life. You can save people's life. That's what's crazy. So do those things. They're for real. And for goodness sake, if you have a stroke, come to the ER. <laughs> Perfect ending. This Won't Hurt a Bit is a production of Fooly Boo Incorporated, produced by Bill Connor. The information you hear on This Won't Hurt a Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So be sensible and keep it real. And this... Oh, this. 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 This.